We're looking at Psalm 54 this morning. This is the last psalm we'll be looking at for the summer. We, we've spent several weeks now in the psalms. Next week we'll be heading back into our uh, Old Testament series on moving through the Old Testament. And then later in the fall we will move into the book of Revelation. Uh, and uh, try to deal with that faithfully. This morning we're looking at Psalm 54. In 1935, the, the U.S. Army, at the time the Army and the Air Force were connected, they separated in 1947, the Army realized it was falling behind its competitors in, in some of its Air Force, especially its long-range bombing capacity. So they began to look for a new long-range bomber. They had a competition, and it came down to what seemed to be the shoe-in winner, the Boeing 299, and a smaller plane, a less sophisticated plane, the, the Douglas D-18. The Boeing, everybody, everybody knew it was better. Some, somebody called it the Flying Fortress because it was so large and so advanced in technology. Its hauling capacity was greater and its range was greater. It was just going to be the one the Army used to get ahead. But on the, when they brought him to test them, on the day it was tested, the Army put in Major Ployer P. Hill, who was maybe the, the most well-known and best pilot they had in the Boeing 299, the Flying Fortress, and he took off, and, and it proceeded to crash in a deadly crash into the ground. Reason, pilot error. Pilot error. How could this man, who's this sophisticated and adept pilot, have such error? Well, the Boeing 299 was pretty complex for one person. And one newspaper said it's just too much plane for one man to handle. And that's before, of course, like all the onboard computing we have now. And though it, in simulation, it was fine. In the real time, it was a problem. And it shows us that even somebody as adept and sophisticated as Ployer Hill, the, the pilot, when things are happening in real time and things are coming at you and the complexity is high, and there's this fog of responsibility that's all around you. You can forget, even if you're sophisticated and adept, you can forget some main things, like failing to release the brake from the rudder. It's a main thing in flying. And he just forgot to do it. Why? There's so many other things going on. Even the most adept person can forget the main things. I think most of us know the simple reality that it doesn't really matter how long you've walked with Jesus it is still easy to forget some of the main things. They get fuzzy. And when life is coming at you in real time, when the pressure's high, when the situation, the complexity is rich, even the most adept, sophisticated, mature Christians can forget the main thing. One of the ways the Psalms serve us is they keep bringing to us the main thing or some of the main things over and over and over again and keep shaping us by them. And if you read the Psalms, if you're like through the Bible in a year reader or read, I read a Psalm every day, so it's not in-depth, it's just sort of a cursory reading, try to pray through it. It sometimes seems like a lot of the Psalms are very similar thematically with only variations in detail. And I think after reflecting on it, the reason it seems like that is because of this. A lot of the Psalms are very similar thematically with only a little variation in detail. Like, it's really true. You know what else is like that? Life's like that. Think of how many times we deal with this theme in, my, in our own life. My selfishness, pride, lust, or unbelief. Somebody else's selfishness, pride, lust, or unbelief. 
physical breakdown or uncertainty of the future. Like these are the same things over and over and over, just with variations on that theme, but the same themes. And one of the benefits of the Psalms, they keep bringing these same themes to us and keep shaping us, and they have little variations in them. Uh, keep, but they keep bringing us back over and over to what, what we might call the, the, the gospel or the proto-gospel in the Old Testament that finds its full flower in Jesus in the New Testament. And one of these main things that, that we're brought to in this psalm today that many of the psalms bring us to is simply this. I put this in your insert. The Lord, if you're in Christ, the Lord has given us His name to call on in our distress. The Lord has given us his name to call on in our distress. And later on in the verse 4, the Lord is the upholder of our life. That is a main thing that is super easy to get fuzzy on when life comes at you in real time. No matter how long we've walked with Jesus. And as always, we are looking at this psalm in light of the communion table at the end. of That's where we're headed. We look at every Old Testament passage in light of the, not just because we have communion afterwards, but because of what communion points to, which is the work of Jesus, which is what all the Old Testament is pointing to. We, t- we talk often about the Bible being a, what we call progressive revelation, that there's more light the longer it goes, it unfolds, and it's a, an organic unity. So like in the Old Testament, it maybe is the seed of which the full flower is the New Testament. It's just, it's a, it becomes clearer as time goes on. Or sometimes we use the illustration of trailheads. If you're a hiker, you started at the beginning of a trail. You can't see the whole trail from there. It's just the beginning. But it's, then you explore the trail, and it's connected eventually in the Scripture to Jesus in some way. That's where this whole thing is headed. It's pointing us to Christ in many different ways. So Psalm 54, let's just dive in here, take it in the order it's given, ask it to shape us, and see what happens. The... We wouldn't say this is inspired text, but this is helpful text. The the heading of the psalm is this. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So I assume everybody knows what that situation with the Ziphites was, so I don't have to go over that right now. Um, No? Okay. Just kidding, of course. First of all, a maskal is probably a teaching. It probably means a teaching psalm. It's geared to be an instructive psalm for all of God's people all of the time. But it arose out of a particular situation, and that was when the Ziphites went and told Saul, David's hiding among us. What is that? Well, if you remember two weeks ago, nope, whenever we looked at Psalm 52, a couple weeks ago, it was when David was anointed to be the future king by the prophet Samuel, but he wasn't the king yet. There was a king named Saul who was trying to prevent David from becoming the future king by killing him. Now, David hadn't done anything wrong. Okay, at one time in his life, David actually hadn't done anything wrong. He's got lots of problems, but he was accused of being a traitor and trying to usurp the throne. He just wasn't. He was just waiting around until God removed Saul, but Saul thought he was a traitor, accused him of being a traitor, and was trying to have him killed. And also, if if that happened, then Saul would retain the throne. And in Psalm 52, if you remember, the context is in 1 Samuel, when Doeg the Edomite finds out where David is hiding and goes and tells Saul, hey, uh, David's over here, let's go kill him. And we kind of expect Doeg to do that because he is in the employment of King Saul. But So David escapes narrowly with his life, and you can read this in uh, 1 Samuel 23. 
David hides in an area of the south of Israel called Ziph. It's just called, it's an area. I think it means hill. And the Ziphites go and tell Saul the same thing. Hey, David's over here. Why don't you come and kill him? Now, we expect Doeg to do that. But the Ziphites, who are they? Well, they are not just Israelites. They are of the tribe of Judah, David's own tribe. It's David's own guys. And think about it. If David becomes king of Israel, one of their own has become king. But instead, in order to ingratiate themselves and the powers that be in the land, they're like, hey, come and get this guy. So what this is, that this is a betrayal to David. This is a betrayal to him. And while, so in one sense, this psalm is for everyone. It's a maskal that reveals what God is like in prayer. It's also maybe particularly for those who feel they have been betrayed or falsely accused or abandoned or rejected or one of their own, one of their own family perhaps, has turned against them, abandoned them. Maybe for those who have been, who have assumptions have been made about them, and others have acted in light of those assumptions. That's you. Psalm 54 is especially for you. It is also for the rest of us, so let's walk through it. Verse 1, David prays, O God, Save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Now, we've talked about the name of God a lot in our Old Testament series and in the Psalms. It's not the word like G-O-D, God, that name, no. This is the personal covenant name of God that he revealed to his people. Like, it's God's personal name. When he was to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he went to Moses and said, I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses said, how will they believe me? God says, basically, tell me, tell them my name, and my name is I Am. I Am. It's the self-existent, independent. We're not quite sure what it means because it, kind of, it kind of means everything. We've dug into that a lot. In Hebrew thought, Name meaning and character were much more connected than in American thought. A lot of times we name our kids a name like, oh, we kind of think this name is cool. It sounds good. We'll name them that. Or my aunt was named that. That's fine, right? That's our context. In the Hebrew Old Testament context, name and character went together. Therefore, later in Exodus, God reveals himself. God gets to talk about himself. He reveals himself and says, this is what I'm like. This is my character. He reveals it to Moses for the people. It's, it, this is in Exodus 34. I put this in your insert. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God's saying, I'm going to tell you my name, and he gives a list of character qualities about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. So let me just that end there. That's a, that's a callback call forward to Deuteronomy 5. Anyway, it doesn't mean if the father sins, three generations of kids get cut off. It means if that sin tends to keep going in generation. To, when you have an unbelieving parent, you tend to have unbelieving children. But God is merciful, and uh, he, that will not go forever, only to three or four generations. 
you trace all these character qualities out in the Scripture. Steadfast, love, and faithfulness, merciful, gracious, stow to anger, uh, keeping steadfast love in thousands. We did this a few months ago. We traced all the way through Scripture and show that that comes to the, to the focus in Jesus Christ himself. The one who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, or as the Greek says, grace and truth. John 1. And remember, that name, when it gets translated in, you know, in the English, is I am, I am, I am. And Jesus then comes on the scene, and the Gospel of John records Jesus repeatedly making these I am statements. I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the great shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, there's two more. I'm forgetting them in a moment. But... Uh, and people know what he means. He's saying, I am the I am, and that's why people try to kill him. It's like, you're claiming to be God. That's exactly what he's doing. And he is the full character of God put on display. Here's what David is praying, though. When he says, save me by your name, he's saying, uh, God, be who you are for me in this situation. Be who you really are. Act in this situation in a way that's in line with your character for me. It's a bold request in prayer. Save me by your name. That's all packed in there. Be who you really are for me in this situation. Now, uh, if we really consider who God is, and especially like th start thinking about the I am, as we pray that way, what also comes to mind is, well, he is the sovereign one who's not accountable to me, <laughs> who exists in all time. So he actually might have something else going on in this situation that I haven't thought of yet. But nonetheless, Lord, be who you are for me in this situation. It's very bold. Is it okay for us to pray that way? 2 Timothy 3 says, every scripture is breathed out by God. It came through the pen of David, but it came from the lips of the Holy Spirit, given to us in the scripture. Yes, it's okay for us to pray this way. It's given to us to shape us in this way. Uh, so many of the Psalms are just calling us into this deep gut-level engagement with God. He goes on, verse 3. For strangers, literally that's insolent and arrogant, have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before them. Uh, Selah, that's just a phrase that means pause. Fleck right here. So I put the, par the parenthesis in there just to show that that stranger there doesn't mean like foreigners. These weren't foreigners. These were David's own men, David's own countrymen. But they are insolent and arrogant. That is, they are those who don't set God before their eyes. Now, they weren't atheists, like we talk about materialist atheists today. They were Jewish people. But they were acting as if God did not exist. Last week, Taylor talked about functional atheism. That's just Psalm 53. There's a theme, right? Doeg is like the faithless, unbelieving, godless person. Psalm 53 is about the fool says in his heart there is no God. Uh, Psalm 54 is like these don't set, guys don't set God before their eyes. They were functional atheists. But uh, for us, what we got here, I think, is David just complaining to God as he sees it with some specificity. He's articulating the problem and then casting it on God. First Peter 5, the, the, the apostle Peter says, cast your anxieties on the Lord or roll your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. He's taking that from the very next psalm, Psalm 55. Casting your anxieties on God. That's what David is doing in these first three verses. He is 
casting his anxieties on God. How is he doing that? First, he's engaging with God. This seems so simple, but like sometimes we've got to go back to kindergarten. He is actually engaging with God verbally. And then he is bringing these anxieties to him and articulating them as he sees them. And then he is saying, God, do something in this situation for me based on your character. So a secret about a lot of pastoral ministry, I'm I'm telling you just inside pastor stuff here. I may not have a job after this, right? Because a lot of it is so simple. But you can do this on your own or with your friends, in your community groups, with people you love. Actually, our job's not in jeopardy because there's a whole lot of it to go around. A whole bunch of pastoral ministry is getting with people and saying, okay, let's ask God to do something in this situation. And people will say, oh, I think I've already done that. Have you really articulated this to God? No, but I, yeah, he knows about it. That's not what the psalmist is saying. Let's get on our knees or get on our faces and say, God, I need you. I don't know what's going on here. Here's the situation. I know you know, but I've got to say it. I want to give this to you. Here's it is the best I can see it. Now, this is your character. Would you act in line with your character for me? Here's what I'd like to see, but I also realize that you are sovereign and omniscient, and you may be doing stuff I don't know. Open my eyes to that too, but act, please. And I tell you, I've over 30 years... I cannot think of a time, and there might be, of doing that or somebody doing that with me where I need to go back to kindergarten, keep the main thing the main thing, where something hasn't changed. I just, what that something might be, occasionally it's exactly what I asked for. I found that I'm not that good at asking for those type of things. <laughs> um, something else might change. Our vision of the situation and Yahweh's partnership with us in that might change. Something changes. But if we leave it unengaged, leave the things unspoken, unsaid, it is very hard for me to discern change. That's just a practical thing. That is, that is a lot of what being a pastor is. That's a lot of what being a Christian friend is or being a Christian spouse is. Let's get with God and actually ask him to act in line with his character right here. And tell him stuff, yes, he already knows, but we need to articulate it. We need to tell him these things. And something changes in us as we do that. And I wonder if that's not happening to David in this psalm. Verse 4. There's a shift here. He, in verse, the first three verses, he's bringing these anxieties to God. And then in the last verses, he's like bringing God into his self. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. So first, that word helper does not mean assistant. It's a really weak word in English, unfortunately. It's the Hebrew word ezer. It does not mean assistant. It has, a, it has battle imagery. It has warfare imagery, and it's focused on God's presence. That kind of helper. By the way, also, this is not part of the sermon, but I think it's helpful to say, this word ezer is the, also the word Uh, the scripture uses when God creates Eve for Adam and says it's not good that man should be alone I will make a helper suitable to him he is not saying I'm making Adam an assistant he is saying I am making not putting Eve in the place of God but it's the same 
the conceptual. It's I'm making for Adam a battle partner in life. Not to battle each other, right? That sometimes that happens in, in marriage. But no, what the husband and wife, the picture is we are together and we do battle together in this life for each other in this world. That's the word Ezra. That's all connected in there. A lot of marriage counseling, by the way, is turning that battle from this to let's work together. Okay. Um, okay, back to the text. Uh, in, in the middle of verse 4, there's like a change. He moves from calling God, God, which is the word Elohim, to this different word for God, Adonai. This is tricky. Like Adonai in the Hebrew is typically Lord, L-O-R-D, without capitalized. And Yahweh, which is down at the end of this passage, is capital L-O-R-D in your English. But he moves to focusing on Adonai, which is the so- focus on the sovereignty of God. This sovereign one is the upholder of my life. So I kind of wonder if the writing with David goes like this. Behold, God is my helper. Yeah, you know, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. The Lord is the upholder of my life. There is a personalization that's going on here. Where it appears that David is now seeing the situation through the covenant love of God, not in general, not just for the people, but for him. And the Psalms have a lot of corporate language. Taylor calls it the y'all language, right? Uh, Y'all, 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 corporate. That is true, but that is not exclusively true. Here, David is saying, the Lord is the upholder of my life. And then this... God is giving this to this in the scripture for you to pray, say, and plead this same reality. God, the Lord, is the upholder of my life. And if we leave that vague and don't articulate that, it becomes easy to have that fuzzy and to lose it. Some of us right now, I know there are situations in our life where we say, I need to know this fresh. The Lord is the upholder of my life. My, Roger Williams' life. What does upholder mean? Right? It is the, the one that I, I lean on, the, the ground, the, the foundation. I rest upon him. He braces me. He supports me. It means uphold, right? In this psalm, it seems like it's a little fuzzy for David at first, and then it gets clear. Is that not our experience in times of distress? A couple, last year, maybe a year, 14 months ago, I got these new glasses, but I didn't wear them for several months because they, they are progressive lenses for you young people. That means that when we get old, we can't see, uh, at, and we can't, not only can't see well, we can't see well at, differently at different lengths and distances. And so these glasses have different corrections in different parts of the glasses for distance and middle distance and up close and way up close. And they, they progress, right? So, uh, and it takes your brain a while to get used to them. It kills your ping pong game too, by the way. You hit it and the ball's going. Anyway, um, uh, I, you know, I was in the, my son, Luke, was in the first service, and he's like, yeah, you're just not that good at ping pong. But uh, now I've got an excuse at least, praise the Lord. Um, but I didn't wear these glasses at first because I get out of bed, and usually the first thing I do is read the scripture, and I would put these glasses on, and I'm like, because it's like to read, it's like looking through a keyhole to find the, where things are clear. 
over time, your brain adjusts to it. I can just do it mostly naturally right now, although there's a little bit of adjustment. There is an adjustment period to using these progressive lenses. That's what we see in this psalm. That's what we see in our life. Even we're pleading, crying out to God in earnestness and clarity and asking for him, his name to be shown to us, it just takes a minute. It takes a while. I'm not sure how long it took to write this psalm. It's a song, after all. You know, songwriters take a while to write a song. He didn't just whip this out in 15 seconds. This could have been three weeks, three months, a year and a half. I don't know. It takes us a while in our life to get to the point where we're saying, the Lord is my upholder. But it is a change. Now we say, this is where we see clearly, oh, Jesus is for me. I was desperate, and he rescued me. He gave his life for me. How will he not also give me all things in his good time? All through this psalm series, we've been seeing how this calls us back to Romans 8, 31 and 32, if you remember that passage. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us together all things in due time? He's already given us the best thing. He will eventually give us all the things, but he's doing other things at the same time. And sometimes that gets fuzzy and hard to hang on to, and we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And then the Spirit is gracious to us and shows us, and we say, oh, that's right. And that's what's happened in verse 4. And so he continues in verse 5. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Not going to go into a lot of depth here, just in view of the clock, but there's this, there's this teaching in Scripture, this return evil to my enemies, that evil tends to collapse in on itself. Sin tends to return to itself. Some theologians call it the, the boomerang effect of sin. And all David's saying is, yeah, that's what the Lord does. There's, he works for these secondary means of these instruments of things collapsing in on people. But what I want us to see is David is saying, Lord, I will trust you to do this. I'm not going to take vengeance. You will fix this. And later, shortly after this, David has two opportunities to kill Saul, the one trying to kill him. He would have been totally justified in doing it from everybody's perspective around him, and he doesn't. He says, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. God put Saul in, and God can take Saul out. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust him to do that. But what is Jesus, this change, this change in the situation, Lord, now you, I believe you're going to take care of this. Now, what has changed in the situation, actually? Nothing, as far as we can tell. He's still on the run. Except in David's world now, Yahweh is in view. And this, look how this ends, verse 6. With the free will offering I will sacrifice to you I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Theologians tell us he is speaking of the future as if it's already happened. He hasn't been delivered from the hand of his enemies yet, but he says, I will look on my enemies with triumph because you have already done it, even though I haven't experienced it yet. I trust you. Why? Because your name, O Yahweh, is good. And it's good for me. It's already 
happened. It's over, but it's still playing out. My son was playing football this year but for Covenant High School. And uh, in, high, in Indiana High School, there's a, what's called a mercy rule, where in the fourth quarter, if you're up by more than 35 points, they leave the clock running. And it's mercy, not just for the losing team, but for the parents who have to watch the game. And so on Friday night, he was playing a school. I'm not going to tell you who that was because they were terrible. And they were up 73 to 36 in the fourth quarter. And this team, part of the reason they were down so far, they, they threw the ball all the time. When you throw the ball, the clock stops, and they, the game lasts forever. And so if you're down that far, you just run the game to run the clock out. But they kept throwing the ball, and the clock kept stopping. I'm like, you're going to lose by 100 points. Um, but the mercy rule took effect, and the clock just kept running. I'm like, oh, good. We're only going to get home by 1 a.m., not 2. Um, it was already over. So with like, let's say, with a minute and 21 seconds left in the game, that team's down by 40 points. Look, the game is over, but it's still going on. You see what I'm saying? You can, my son's team could have looked at the other team and say, I looked on, in triumph on my competitors, even though the game wasn't over yet. Right? It's already done, even though things are still unfolding. David says, I look in triumph on my enemies. Jesus on the cross says it is finished. A final declaration of what he's done. Now, the outworkings of that are going to take a, f- a few years. We're still in the outworkings of that. But the reason we can say the same thing, look in triumph on our enemies, that enemy of sin, Satan, and death, is because Jesus has done something in the full character of his name and gone to the cross for us. And so we can say, I look in triumph on my enemies. No, I look in triumph on my despair. I look in triumph on these broken relationships. I look in triumph on the uncertainty of the future, or I even look in triumph on my own frailty. Because though those things may endure, what is real is I have one who loves me in the middle of that. And because I have this one, or rather this one has me, I know those things actually will not endure permanently. And I can look in triumph on those things. This one who has a name that he's given to us, and who is the upholder of our life. To keep central is the main thing. In 1935, though the, um, I don't have it now, oh well. In 1935, though the Army did go with contract with Douglas for the DC-18, they bought a few Boeing 299s, just for test planes, because they were so good. And somebody in the Army came up with something like this, an index card, on which they wrote a checklist that would fit on one side of an index card, a checklist for takeoff, for flight, and for landing that would simply fit on a card this size, written out, that the pilots had to check off. And the hotshot pilots said, we're not going to do that, we're experts. They would be reminded that, well, Ployer Hill flew this thing into the ground, and he was better than you. (laughs) They needed something to keep the main thing the main thing. So after that checklist, that Boeing 299 flew 1.8 million miles without a single incident with all the pilots. The Army said, this isn't so bad after all. They bought 13,000 of those, changed the name to the B-17 bomber, and won World War II. 
gave them a decided advantage in the air war over Nazi Germany. Because of the post, uh, index card? No. Because the main thing was kept the main thing. New City, friends, here's the main thing. The Lord is the upholder of your life. And he has given us his name that we may call out to him. And this is kept in view fully and repeatedly by repeatedly and fully keeping the cross of Christ in view. Right? Here, Jesus lays down his life to uphold ours. Here, at the cross, Jesus cries a cry of dereliction and abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he would never forsake us and always be our strong helper, present with us. Here, really, is the, the final answer to, Jesus, to David's prayer. Save me by your name. Save me, O God, in your full character. And the cross, Jesus says, yes. Here you have the full character of me on display. For you, I am forever the upholder of your life. So bring that to me. Wherever you are, we bring that to him. This is why we go to the communion table every single week. This is the tangible, multi-sensory display that Christ himself on full display with his full character is the upholder of our life. If you're in Christ, if you know him as the upholder of your life, by faith this table is open to you. This table is open to you. We say this isn't for perfect people, it's for honest people to say, I'm a mess and I need a Savior and I have a Savior. 